welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Uh, today in the podcast is an interview I've uh, been trying to schedule for quite a while. Um, and uh, we've been having lots of Lots of back and forth things, different reasons for, for rescheduling, but I'm so happy that we're finally able to do this. Um, and so in the, on, on the show today, we have Dr. Tacita Mizayo. Welcome to the show, Tacita. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. So um, Tacita is in, uh, in uh, Brazil. Uh, what city are you in? Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo. Okay. Beautiful. Um, and, uh, we're going to be talking a lot about, uh, all things Brazil and behavior analysis, um, and some, and some issues that are, you know, um, close to, uh, uh, Dr. Mizal's heart, heart and my own, and, uh, really interested to kind of hear the perspectives from, um, you know, on these topics, which I've talked a lot about on the podcast, but not from, not from the Brazilian context, which I think is is really important. So, uh, Tessa, before we kind of get into some of these amazing papers that you wrote, I mean, and I imagine you have a lot more amazing papers that I just can't read, uh, but I, I do uh, really appreciate uh, that uh, you've 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 made a, you've, you've and we'll, we'll we'll get into this later, but you've made a kind of concerted effort to put out papers in English, um, um, in part, I think to you know to disseminate, but also to um, you know to show the world that uh, there's some really cool things happening in Brazil in behavior analysis, um, and uh, and and so I'm looking forward to digging into that. But I think you also have a lot of really good stuff in Portuguese. I assume you have a lot of really good stuff in Portuguese. Uh, just looking at some of the titles and some of the books you've written, uh, and so uh, you know it, it'll be interesting to kind of touch on some of that stuff too. But before we get into that, maybe you could just kind of tell us. Uh, uh, how you got into the field of ABA and um, and and what led you to kind of really do all this work in kind of, you know, the social justice area? Okay, well, actually, uh, I think it was just luck. I, I was an undergrad student and I was in this university and a small city within Sao Paulo where... Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you know them, but Julio de Rose and Daisy de Souza are professors and like their main names in the field. And mm. of course, I had no idea. I was mm. just a very young girl learning psychology. Mm -hmm. And so I happened to be in one of the centers of behavior analysis within Brazil without knowing it. Mm. And I kind of got into the field, you know, like there was that. And also... Uh, because I actually struggled a little bit with psychoanalysis, which was the other main thing that we learned. And I had trouble because I've always been a very, you know, like a very rational person. And I like variables and I like knowing how things work. And I was learning how to do research within psychology, you know, like qualitative and quantitative research. And I was just struggling to see how psychoanalysis could fit within this um, way we look at research, experimental research, at mm. least, you know. And so I was like, yeah, that's not for me. And then I, <laughs> oh, there's this other thing here. And it was actually great. I mean, at first, it was just a 
going through exclusion and going to behavioral analysis, but then I really loved it because it made sense for me because I was struggling with theories that were brought from other countries, you know, like Europe, uh, United States, and just mm. not, not applied to the reality of Brazil. And mm. within behavioral analysis, I think we don't have that issue because we have to look at the environment the person is in, you know? Exactly. So I was like, yeah, it was developed in the United States, but we can actually think about the reality within Brazil to work with it. So I think it was basically that. And I had the chance, I did an internship. I think I was a second year undergrad student. And so here in Brazil, Julio and Daisy have developed a very successful learning program. You know, like they use stimulus equivalence to teach uh, basic reading skills to students that are falling behind schedule. And I was able to work a little bit with that. And I was like, when I discovered stimul uh, equivalence of stimulus, I was like in love with it mm. because for me, it explained everything. And to mm. this day, I'm like, this is just huge. You know, this is just so important. It's a way of looking at things that just make sense to me. Mm. Mm. And especially being, a, you know, like I was this undergrad student in an university that was white and I was one of the I think there were like 40 students in my class and there were just me and two other, three other black people in mm. there. So yeah, it, it was hard, you know, and I was poor. I mean, I'm poor, <laughs> I'm still poor, but you know, <laughs> like being a poor person, a black person, a woman who's part of the LGBTQIA community, mm. it was just, wow. You know, like it was just hard because it felt like none of what I was learning applied to myself or to the people that are, uh, you know, in the neighborhoods that I grew up with. And when I started learning behavior analysis, I thought that I could actually suit them. You know, like I can look at this and apply this to any any environment that I'm in. Mm. And within a stimulus equivalence, it was like a similar phenomenon because I was always thinking about prejudice Mostly, I think, because I was suffering from it. And when I looked at, like, relations and how people, you know, like, develop prejudices and attitudes towards people and then behave accordingly to them, mm. uh, it was just like, yeah, I have a way of looking at this. Like, I can design experiments, but I can also look at real-world applications. And so it was pretty much what led me to do a master's degree and then pursuing an academic career. Hmm. That's cool. Can you, there's a lot, lots of things to unpack there. I wonder first you might be able to just tell us a bit about sort of ABA in Brazil in general. I mean, I think for, again, for me, I'm in Canada. And so we have, you know, um, this sort of, perspective that you know kind of mirrors the u.s because we're very quick we border with them and so a lot of i think what we learn about aba is from the u.s and and um and as i've been kind of um doing these interview these podcasts i've been doing a lot of interviews with folks internationally and just sort of learning about aba in different countries and, and most of the folks i've talked to so far i mean i know there's a, a lot of there's a lot of countries to get to um ABA has been has been a fairly new thing in their countries, um, and, and you know usually the person I'm interviewing is like one of three BCBAs or behavior analysts in their country, 
It's very new. Um, but it, it sounds like, and, and, and uh, that, you know, just from sort of, you know, and again, this is, I, I haven't done my research, but just from sort of, um, you know, I guess, you know, ABAI kind of conferences and those sorts of things, you know, that there, there seems to be a little more happening in ABA in, 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 in some South American countries and in, in, and in a few European countries, there seems to be, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a bigger history of ABA. Uh, but I, I don't think I had any idea on kind of what it was. You mentioned uh, th those two folks. I've never heard of those two folks, Daisy and uh, and uh, who's the other one? Sorry, <laughs> already forgot. Uh, Julio or Julio de Jose. Julio, yeah. So I've, I've never heard of either of those folks. But you say they're two huge big names in behavior analysis, and and this just shows that uh, you know maybe I need to get out more. But um, can you can you tell me tell me a bit about sort of you know. Uh, a short version of sort of the history of ABA in Brazil, like how long has it been around, who kind of brought it there and, 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 and kind of what the educational opportunities are. And lastly, because I, I, I didn't hear you mention autism at all. And usually when I'm talking to folks about ABA, it's usually because they're in the autism field and that gets them in the ABA. So maybe talking a bit about sort of where that fits in Brazil. Okay. So there's a lot of information. Yes, sorry, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, so I think the history of Brazil and behavior analysis is longer because we have like we have literature from the 60s. I think, mm. yeah, like we had, wow. uh, do you know Fred Keller? Yes. So yeah, he went to Brazil and then he helped develop behavior analysis in Brazil. And um. we have also Carolina Body, who's a Brazilian. And so in the 60s, we had already uh, laboratories of experimental research within Brazil. And wow. so we have, a, yeah, yeah, I think we have a bigger history because of that. And yeah, I noticed that too, that sometimes when you're talking about behavior analysis, it's usually uh, autism, but we have that in Brazil as well. But we also have this history with experimental research because of that history, you know. And mm. so, so... What I remember is that, so in the 60s, we had these two main names within behavior analysis, learning and teaching students. And then these students went to other universities and started learning, like teaching behavior analysis to their students mm. as well. Mm. And that's how the main centers of behavior analysis developed within mm. Brazil. And I think we have at least five, you know, like five universities with a strong uh, program of research in mm. behavior analysis and like experimental behavior analysis, not just applied behavior analysis. Mm. Mm. Uh, so yeah, we have this bigger history because of that. And so I think it came from the United States, but it, it developed over, over time in here. Um, and that's just like the, that's a way of summing it up a lot yeah, of yeah. history. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, regarding, yeah, but when we talk about applied behavior analysis, it, usually autism comes to mind. I can deny that. Uh, what I can say is that I think autism, autism is actually the main field when it comes to applied behavior analysis in Brazil. We have hmm. a lot of uh, courses within applied behavior analysis that are specific to autism. Right. And yeah, but this is actually, I have a paper actually that 
kind of criticizes that, you know, like, not exactly, but yeah, I mean, personally, I think we should use this to other things as well. Mm. It's not because I don't like the autism research, I mean, I'm autistic, and mm. I <laughs> like some things, I don't like other things, <laughs> but, you know, um, I, I don't even, I can't even say why. This is the case, but yes, when it comes to applied behavior analysis, I think autism is just the main field, and perhaps because we have a lot of studies on it, and also there's like a a marketing scheme, and people make money of it. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not gonna deny that this actually happens. Um, I don't remember what else you asked me. To no, no, that's good. So, um, so, so, so I think that's the big piece is, and, and, and that's probably why, you know, I haven't, uh, heard a lot about behavior analysis in Brazil is because I'm not really in the sort of experimental sort of circles. I, I, you know, my, my school didn't really do anything in, in EAB. Um, you know, I think there maybe have been a couple of references here and there, but mine, my program was entirely applied and, and, uh, you know, I, I, I struggle to read, you know, experimental, uh, journals and articles. I actually, I had a, I had a guy on the podcast a while back, one of the early episodes, a guy named Val Saney. Uh, he's at, uh, one of our universities here in Canada and he was doing some translational stuff. And, uh, and, uh, that was interesting. That was sort of my first real conversation with anybody about experimental analysis and, uh, and, and kind of, you know, how, it, uh, how it sort of, you know, applies in, in ABA and whatnot. And, uh, it was really interesting, but, um, but it can be, it can get really technical and really, um, you know, uh, super jargony, um, and, uh, you know, formulas and all these sorts of things and, um, yeah, it, it, it's hard on my brain, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but that's interesting that there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, experimental history. The other thing I've noticed that I'm, I'm, I'm learning, you know, and, and your papers are, are really helpful, I think, um, for putting some of this in context, cause I'm still, I'm still a, a, a newbie when it comes to ACT and RFT and that sort of thing. Um, and most of the stuff that I know about both of those areas, I learned doing this podcast, um, you know, I don't really read much beyond the articles, um, that, uh, that my guests have written. Um, but I, it looks like there's, there's act is a whole other thing where act seems to be international. Like act, act seems to be everywhere. Like it seems to be in every country in the world in some way or another where, where behavior analysis might not seem like it's there. There's quite a bit of, I think there's quite a bit of act and act practitioners in Brazil. Is that the case? Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you how many there are, but yeah, we have a a lot of them that actually study under like names in, in the United States, you know, mm. like famous people, and then come to Brazil and, and uses mm. and 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 teaches people. So we have uh, some courses on on act, yeah. Yeah, and you said you only have you have so so for a country that's because Brazil is huge. So Brazil is like what, like, like two hundred million people, something like that. Um, you know, uh, that's not far off from the U.S. Um, uh, I think I read in one of your papers, something was like the fourth or fifth biggest country in the world by population. Uh, behavior analysis has been around since the 60s, and yet you only have five universities um, uh, that, uh, the, that focus on this area. Like how many universities, give or take, are in Brazil? Like just throwing like hundreds? 
Hun- yeah. yeah. So there, there's lots and lots of universe. Point just 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 to give a context of a five. Whereas in Canada, you know, we have we have like 35 million people, um, and we have I think we have four universities that that do graduate level or above um, ABA. We have several more that do kind of undergrad stuff. Um, so it, it just seems like that's not very much in Brazil. You know, is is there a reason why it didn't expand even more? Do you know? Any thoughts? That's a research question. Yeah. <laughs> I have some hypotheses, you know. Uh, yeah. But it, yeah, it's hard to like pinpoint a, yeah. a reason, specific reason as to why yeah. uh, this is not the case. So I don't know. I think, I mean, what I think, one of my hypotheses is that like, the technical language doesn't help because we usually talk just with other behavior analysts. We don't right. talk to other people. And when we talk to other people, we don't have, we do not do a good job at translating the technical language. And so people are like, what, what is this person saying? You know? And I think that's a, a huge problem because I think we have so much to offer, you know, and at the same time, we close ourselves like we are a field that, I mean, that's my impression, of course, but that we are a field that it's not open to other fields, it's open to learning from others. Yes. And also when there's some type of interchange happening, we struggle to translate what we want to say, like the, mm. the terms and the technical stuff. So I think... It's one of the, the reasons as to why perhaps um, it's not more spread throughout Brazil. Mm. And perhaps prejudice as well, I think, because to this day, I see, you know, like when you are not in one of these five uh, universities with a strong behavior analysis curriculum, you see people talking about behavior analysis, uh, you know, and their understanding is just so poorly you know like it's they talk about behavior analysis sometimes as if they were talking about uh early types of behaviorism for instance you know Mm. so it's like oh it's just stimulus and response and you know Mm. like it's it's a very basic and ill-informed understanding of things and then people are like oh there's just that's a mechanistic way of of seeing things, you know, like they don't take into account the structures, the, you know, like when we talk about oppression and gender and social markers and things like mm-hmm. that. So I've, I've had some experiences studying in like I did a, uh, a course on gender and sexuality and it was entirely informed uh, with like sociology studies and other right. fields. And there and the class is full of psychologists and they were like, oh, I don't like behavior analysis because it's, it doesn't take the individual, you know, like everything's just the person and stimulus and response and rats and things like that. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I mean, yes, but no. And it's just, you know, it's hard to explain. Yeah. And it, when you have the chance to explain, sometimes they don't even give you a chance to explain. They don't, they don't even want to hear it. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think the other thing that makes sort of you know, the reason why, you know, other countries have so many programs in behavior analysis is because of autism and funding for autism programs. Yeah. Is, 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 is there, and we're not, we're not going to get too deep into, into autism today, but 
but in Brazil, is there funding for autism programs or like how does that work in general? Are you looking for a way to recognize World Autism Month in a meaningful, actionable way? Foundations for Divergent Minds is a nonprofit organization rooted in the belief that all neurodivergent people should be able to thrive in the communities they live, work, and play. We are offering courses to professionals to provide a space to explore neurodiversity through a different lens while staying true to your field. Every course fee directly supports our programs tackling healthcare gaps for autistics of color, designing local community programs, and promoting safety for autistic people. We recognize that the fear of discomfort can be a big deterrent for many people, but that also discomfort is the place where growth comes from. So we created several courses aimed at offering this space to different fields of practice. One for teachers, educators, speech language pathologists, occupational therapists and counselors, and the other for behavior analysts. If you're unsure what steps to take to build a neurodiversity aligned practice, these courses are a great resource and co-instructed by professionals in your field of practice. For the behavior analyst course, go to FDM, that's F as in Frank, D as in Donald, M as in Mary, dot training forward slash response. Everyone else can go to FDM dot training forward slash implement. And now for a limited time, you can use the discount code behavior speaks, all caps, to receive a 10% discount. Hope to see you there. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is collaboration. I would say I think there is, but actually when it comes to like uh, graduate programs, I don't recall programs that are focused on autism or even, I mean, we have courses on applied behavior analysis, but it's just a minority. I think the funding for autism goes mainly to the medical field, mm, but it's just yeah. an impression. I mean, it's not based on any data. It's just based on my thoughts. No, that makes some sense. And I mean, I think that's, that's not uncommon in other countries as well. Um, so just just one more kind of question around sort of... Oh, just you know, I'm sorry oh, to yeah. interrupt you. I, I yeah. remember something that I think it might be important. Yeah. Uh, so here in Brazil, like in the United States, we have the government saying that behavioral analysis is the primary treatment for autism. Yes. Yes. We don't have that in Brazil. So mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Perhaps that's, that's an important information. Like we have evidence, of course, of the, the importance of interventions using behavior analysis, but we don't have that endorsement from the government. I see. I see. I was just also going to ask, um, so since your programs aren't primarily, you know, ABA and more experimental, who, who, or maybe why, I'm not really sure what the question is, is, but what, why, why are experimental programs being funded? Like, what, why, who, who, who in Brazil is giving someone a grant to do experimental research in ABA? Like, why, why is there an interest in that? You know what I mean? Uh, 
Okay, how do I answer that question? Yeah, it wasn't a great question. I don't, so. I don't think. No, no, no. It, it is a, it is a, a good question. It's just that it's hard to explain because those five centers that I've mentioned are yeah. public universities. Mm. All public universities in Brazil are funded by the government. Oh, okay. And I mean, I don't know for sure, but I don't think the type of research you do matters. I think just we have some money and you can use it. You know, like if you have professors that are working on three different fields, then you have this money. Uh, so it's not as far as I know, it, it, it doesn't really, you know, like to answer your questions, just like it's not that experimental research is being, is being funded because it's not. Mm. Uh, it's just that the public universities have money. And if there are behavioral analysts working in these universities, they can use the money to do this right, type of research. Right. Actually, when you look at some specific funding agencies, we see that tendency to have more funding to applied settings. Hmm. And that's not surprising, I don't think. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, really cool. So, you know, actually, maybe I'll ask one more question before we kind of dive, start diving into your research and the topics and kind of why you chose those. Um, uh, you, you mentioned as well that you're autistic. Um, yeah. and, uh, which is cool. Um, I mean, you've got, uh, you've got a lot of intersecting identities, um, uh, that, uh, you know, kind of, um, which kind of probably is probably part of the reason why you do some of the research that you're doing. And maybe this is a good segue. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but just, just looking at the, the autistic, uh, uh, identity right now, a couple of questions. One, are, are you a sort of a more recently diagnosed or were you as a child? No, I was diagnosed um, in 2020, oh. uh, you know, like in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I had, I had a suspicion at some points in my life, mm. but I just disregarded it. Yeah. And when the pandemic started, I just like a lot of autistic life behaviors increased in frequency in mm. a way never before experienced and then i was like no i have to to know if i'm autistic yeah mm -hmm. yeah and and has that been has that been a positive having the diagnosis for you i'm sorry like has that been a good thing finding out that you're autistic like has yeah that it was you great or? yeah yeah i think so i mean uh it explained a lot yeah. <laughs> about my yeah. life and I've never seen it as a bad thing, you know, like what I, what it was bad, it was that it took so long for me to discover that because there were some specific points in my life where I actually needed some type of support and I didn't mm. have it and I mm. didn't know I needed and I could have that support, you know, and mm. so that's the only bad thing for me. It, it was actually very good to get to know myself better to understand my limits better and to be able to work in therapy, the things that I struggle the most, but also mm -hmm. knowing that there are limitations, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and, and here's a, here's a bit of a, no, no pressure on this question, uh, but um, curious just uh, if you have any thoughts, because it, 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 it's, it's quite a conversation in, in North America. Uh, particularly from, um, you know, um, autistic folks and, and especially from autistic behavior analysts. Um, there's been a lot of conversation just about ABA in itself and sort of some of the issues with it 
uh, I'm curious if, if you sort of have any thoughts either way, just now that, you know, now that you recognize that you're autistic um, and you start and you look at some of these programs for autistic folks, um, uh, do, do, do you sort of have any thoughts about ABA and maybe uh, in terms of maybe needing some improvement and that sort of thing? Yeah, I've actually, I've actually have written a paper on it. It's in hmm. Portuguese. Yeah, with a, a colleague who is also a behavior analyst and autistic okay. as well. Oh, wow. And yeah, yeah. We mainly talked about some issues that we see within the field, you know, like the lack of autistic people, uh, talent, practitioners, like what they actually need. And mm -hmm. So we acknowledge that behavior analysis, you know, applied behavior analysis is good, you know, like it, it's, it's a good tool, but it has to be applied in a certain way and people actually have to know uh not only you know like uh, the basis of behavior analysis the experimental stuff that goes behind it but sure. also that how do i put this we are entitled to an opinion you know like we are entitled to say like this is okay this is not okay mm -hmm. uh you know like we're mainly criticizing some people who wants to eliminate how do I say this in English? How do I mention how do I say this in English? How do I pronounce this word? Stereotypes, yeah. Stereotypes? Okay. Yeah. Uh you know like this type of thing, you know, like if you're not hurting anyone, like what's the problem? What's the problem if the person doesn't look you in the eye, you know? Yeah. So we were criticizing some things uh regarding that like the actions of neurotypical people that are like yeah no you have to be you have to be like a neurotypical person mm. it's like no we don't we are not like you know well, we, we don't maybe, have to maybe sorry maybe you meant to say stereotypy is that what you were talking about yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. stereotypy okay. yes, yeah, yes, yes 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 the repetitive behaviors yes, that's what exactly. i meant <laughs> yes 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 yes, yes. yeah yeah, oh, very interesting. And so, yeah, so I mean, I think this is going to kind of answer my next question because you you do, you know, you do identify with so many, you know, sort of different intersectionalities and intersectionalities that are, you know, generally speaking, um, you know, oppressed in some way um, or or considered a minority in some way, uh, probably not just in Brazil and probably most countries. Um, uh, but maybe we could, you could tell us a little bit about why uh, why uh, so much of your work seems to focus on kind of these social justice areas like feminism and racism and so on. Okay. I think uh, that's probably because of who I am. Yeah. And since it's like since I was a child, like my parents they tell me a lot about this that I was very sensitive to injustices, mm. and so when I saw something, I was like, "No, that's not fair. That's not you." I was that kind of child that, yeah. "No, that's not fair." And I remember things, you know, that are related actually to sexism practices. Like my dad was sitting on his couch drinking, watching TV. And my mom was like washing, the, doing the dishes and, and mm. things like that. And she was like, come help me. I was like, why? Why do I have to like, why, why can't he stay in the couch and you have to do this and I have to do this? So 
I, I didn't know at the time that, uh, you know, like very feminist thing, but yes. I was very sensitive to any type of situation like that. I was like, why is this different? You know, like, why aren't people being treated the same? And then I just, I think I, I grew up and I wanted to make sense of this and make it right some, some way, you know, like, I think that's why I got into this, like my interest are very uh, concerned with the minorities in general, you know, like, mm. because it's basically talking about injustice, you know, and like, that's not fair. Like, so I wanted to tell people that's not fair and try somehow to make it better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, so Maybe we could talk a little bit about sort of uh, just kind of Brazil and the demographics. Uh, you know, I think a lot of folks understand. I, I think, you know, the George Floyd murder has done, a, you know, and, and, the, and the circumstances around in that has, has done a relatively good job of sort of educating the world around racism in the U.S., um and uh and and Canada to a lesser extent I think um um but I think you know for folks like myself who are so you know distant from 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 a lot of these groups I I particularly I mean I live in a a small village that is you know 95% white folks everybody 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 works in a mine here you know they're they're blue collar workers that sort of thing it's very you know it's very um um, uh, you know, uh, homogeneous, I guess, uh, as far as there's not a lot of diversity here. Um, uh, and so, you know, you hear lots of microaggressions all the time, you know, even if they're not sort of referring to anyone in particular, just sort of whether in conversation, there's a lot of, you know, um, uh, sexist conversation and, and uh, you know, and racist conversation, and those sorts of things. And it's just sort of, it's, it's very, it's very normal here. It's very normalized here, racism and sexism. And and, uh, and and many of these other isms, but and I'm sure it is in other countries, but uh, I, I just haven't heard a lot about it. And so maybe you could just tell us a little bit about, you know, broadly some of the demographics of, of kind of Brazil, um, just to kind of give us some context for this work. Okay. Yeah, that's actually important because uh, here in Brazil, in terms of race, black people comprises the majority of the people so we are 56 mm. percent of the population oh okay yeah and it's something that people when they come to brazil they actually see it but if they are not in brazil and they consume media from brazil yes. they will never think that because people on tv are white yes so yes yeah, we have this very disproportionate rate of black and white people yes. in the media yeah and and this and oh another thing that i think it's important to mention is that race in brazil is different than race in the united states mm. because for you uh in the united states it's based on like ancestry you know and here in brazil is phenotype so if you look at me yeah it's it's with the color of your skin or other features you know like the nose, your lips, the type of your hair, like how curly it is. So if you look at me, and, and sometimes I do this when I'm abroad, and like, how do you describe me in terms of race? And people are like, oh, get scared. But I'm like, yeah, no, there's no pressure. Like, 
how would you describe me? And usually they say like, you're a mixed race person. And mm. my mom is actually white and my dad is black. Mm. But, you know, like when people look at me in Brazil, they see me as black. Like that's undeniable. Sure. Okay? Yeah. And But we have in Brazil a history of a myth that people in Brazil with all different races, they get along just fine. And then mm -hmm. we have a lot mm -hmm. of interracial relationships and it's just bullshit, you know, like it's just <laughs> a big lie. But yeah. it, it has hindered people's identity, racial identities, because then we, we grow up in a world where we know we're not white, but we use other words to describe ourselves that it's, it's just hard to even translate, mm, you know, like mm. we, we usually grow up not using the word I'm black or like Afro-Brazilian. We say words that are like, like I'm brown, you know, like, and it's like you're acknowledging you're not white, but also you don't want to be regarded as black because you know that black people suffer in our country. Mm. And this just... Uh, leads to a, a lessening of the amount of people that declares themselves as black. Oh, and so we have the black movements fighting, you know, like throughout the years to make people more aware of that. And things are, I think things are starting to change, but still, uh, when we see, when we talk about race in Brazil, it's just, it's very hard. Like people, don't want to talk about it. They deny that there is racism in Brazil. Mm. And it's just tough, you know. And did, um, did, just, just, just again for some more history. Um, I mean, I think a, a lot of people understand sort of how, you know, the, the practices of kind of, you know, kind of colonization and slavery um, brought, you know, I think most, if not all, black people to North America, um, you know, and that's where you got that ancestral kind of history piece there. Um, is that the same sort of story for Brazil? Is, is that just, was that, is that sort of how folks came no. there? No, no. I think that there's a, there's an important difference because... Mm. So in the United States, we have like the Jim Crow laws, you know, like yep. we had the physical segregation and this yes. never happened in Brazil. Mm. So, yeah, when slavery officially ended, we had black people, you know, like dying, basically, you know, like they were free, but they had no house, no money, no land. Mm. And so we were always able kind of able to be in the same environment you know like never a, a physical segregation you know like this is just for black people and this is just right. for white people it's like no you know like this myth everybody's together but then yeah. you look and you see that white people are always in here, the better yeah. positions and yeah you know like if you're in a restaurant then you see like black people serving white people and mm. this repeats itself in most environments. Yes. So yes. in this is another feature that uh, hinders the racial identification, you know, in, in racial pride, because we actually, we don't have, uh, we grow up without learning about race and even having this feeling of pride that I, mm. I think when I go to the United States, 
and I talk to black people, I feel like they're priding, they know their history. We don't know our history. I know mm. a little bit because I'm studying this, you know? And if I wasn't, I wouldn't know. Before we were so rudely interrupted, um, <laughs> we were we were just talking about... Um, um, I was sort of trying to get an understanding of sort of, you know, how or, you know, kind of how, kind of how black history, I guess, essentially kind of began in Brazil, um, you know. And so I, 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 my understanding of, of North America is, you know, through slavery, that's what, you know, the, the, the white colonists brought the slaves to North America and, you know, and then we know, we kind of know that story from there. And, um, you know, and then eventually, uh, I know you referenced, um, 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 uh, Jim Crow. So like in, in the U S we had the, they had the, the Jim Crow laws, which are basic, were basically, you know, slavery is abolished, but not really. Um, you know, um, that Jim Crow was, was just a, a, another way to continue it. And, and, and I think there's been other things sort of, sort of since then that have just continued to perpetuate systematic anti-black racism in North America, uh, in South America. So, and, and, I, and I was, and I was going to ask anyway, in South America, was there also slavery in South America yeah. in, in Brazil? So, and, and yeah. black slavery in, in kind of the same way, um, and and were these slaves brought by the same sort of in the same sort of way from those from the you know from Africa from 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 colonizing countries or, and was yes. it and, and was it British or was it more uh, like Portuguese? It Portuguese? So it was the Portuguese yeah, it was that brought the slaves over, and that's sort of where Brazil gets its Portuguese language. I see, I see. Okay, uh, and so. And so then you were you were kind of saying that um, um, you didn't have the Jim Crow laws, but you just had you just have segregation in other way. Yeah, we had a lot of laws actually. We didn't have Jim Crow, but we have laws that make it hard to black people to buy land. We had laws that prohibited black people to go to school. You know, so like. Mm. We don't have this formal physical segregation, but we have all other types of segregation that lead to mm. very similar results. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so maybe so now maybe we can we'll start kind of getting into some of your papers here. Um, so, and this is you know this is really what what uh, what drew you to to me what drew me to you originally was was seeing some of these topics and it was, and I mean, it's been great to see some of these topics being written on and written about in, 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 in the U S in, and there's been a, some good stuff coming out. And, and I believe even some of the articles that you published, um, uh, were in journals that were kind of publishing. I, I don't know if, I don't know if your articles were in, like, I know there was an article, I know there, sorry, I'm, 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 I'm mumbling this, but I'm, I'm fumbling this up, but essentially there were, there was a, there was a couple of, um, uh, series, I guess, that came out uh, in behavior analysis and practice, in particular, um, you know, on things related to police and as well as on racism. And I think you published in in, in at least in at least one or a couple of those series, yeah. um, uh, which is awesome. Um, 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 so let's let's uh, let's talk about uh, maybe the, the 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 your work around feminism. 
Uh, and then we'll dive into the racism stuff, which I think is sort of most of the rest of the other research that that that, that I had an opportunity to read. Um, how long is sort of how, how, maybe give it maybe it's just a little bit of a brief history of kind of the the feminist movement in Brazil. I know it's probably a long and there could be lots of details and lots of examples, but just a maybe a brief history of sort of kind of when it started and, 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 and that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, and then kind of what, how, how it, how it then became, you know, a, a behavior, behavior analysis thing in Brazil. Okay. So um, every time I talk about feminism, I actually, I should have said that about everything, but I like to mention that. When you're studying something, you're relying on like academic papers, and you have mm. to remember like who was able to do that, you know? Right. So, yeah, <laughs> I think it's an important note to have in mind. But yes. we have records of feminist discussions in Brazil, I think, growing stronger in the 60s, you know? Um, we consume a lot of American feminist theorists, mainly. And so my understanding is that feminist studies in Brazil were heavily influenced by those theorists. And it began to change, of course, as everything does, when some people started to look in at our own reality and were like, yeah, but we have to look at it. What's, what's, what's the difference, you know, like we're talking about the United States and what we have that is different here in Brazil. And of mm -hmm. course, then other groups as well, noticing that most of the research on feminism is based on the lives of white women, middle-class women, and, and things like that. Yes. You know? uh, but just to jump into like how behavior analysis relates to that. Uh, so what I know is that the when I was still an undergrad, I had already this interest in, in feminism, but I still wasn't sure like how to study or how to look for that. And then hmm. I got into like student meetings and things like that. And only when I was in my master's that I went to, we have this annual behavior analysis conference in Brazil. Hmm. And I've noticed that there were some women who were talking about feminism, you know, like presenting papers and things like that in those conferences. And it was, of course, it was great because there was this mm. space, but then it was just limited to people who could afford the conference. And so mm. we didn't have things written down, like we didn't have publications. It's just like very one or two things in a very sparse um, throughout mm. the years. And so... Uh, a friend of mine, Renata Pinheiro, uh, we're discussing, I mean, I think I discussed this in, in other environments, but we're noticing that it's just so hard because these discussions are so important, but they're, they are in the conference and they, they die until the, the next year mm. we go yes, to the conference yes. again. And she was like, we should organize a book where we have these people who are talking about it, like we invite them to write write it down their ideas like their research and things like that and then this will be able you know like this will enable other people to get in touch with this literature because they were interested like i've talked to people who were 
were interested in, in discussing this, but they were like, yeah, but I, I, I can't find anything on it. Like, I, I mm. want to study this, but how can I study this? And then that's how the, the idea from the book began. Mm. Um, we basically did that. Like, we sat down and we wrote out the names of the, the women, women that we know that were talking about it and studying a little bit about it. And then we invited them and they written down like amazing uh, papers. And then we, we, we had this book. And to this day, it, it's very, I mean, people still look for it. And it's still a, a reference role for Brazilian behavior analysts. This is the, 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 the book, the Debates on Feminism Behavior Analysis book. Yeah, I think it was yes, 20, yes. 2019, maybe. Yeah, yeah. You, you published there, yeah. And, and I assume that's in Portuguese? It's in Portuguese. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. If anybody that's... who is listening and knows of a funding that allows us to translate the book to English or Spanish, let mm. us know. <laughs> Lovely, yeah, no, that's, uh, I'll make a note. That's great. Because there just seems to be a lot of really cool works in Portuguese that you've, you, you've, you've written, you and your colleagues have written that would be really cool to translate. So maybe yeah. we can find some of that. But you did put a. But knowing that there's a gap there, you you did publish this article in Behavior and Social Issues in 2021, yeah. uh, entitled "Behavior Analysis of Feminist Contributions from Brazil," and the very first sort of sentence in the abstract. I'll just read it out here. It, you know, so it sort of speaks to your your eagerness to kind of get this out beyond sort of Portuguese uh, readers. This article presents non-Portuguese readers with developments regarding studies on the intersection between feminism and behavior analysis conducted in Brazil. Uh, this article in particular uh, sounds, look, focused on two topics, um, uh, empowerment and rape culture. Um, um, this is quite the article. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and, you know, I think it, it really comes hard out of the gate uh, talking about some important topics. Um, can you tell us, tell me a little bit about um, maybe just because it's, I was reading about sort of this, uh, it, it sounded, it sounds very, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a good word. Um, uh, very, uh, I don't know, I, 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 I think I would just love to have been a fly on the wall in this room um, because of, of, of this, this you, you write about this group of feminist behavior analysts they got together in 2015 and kind of started a group um, and and it was based on the works of um, uh, Maria del Rosario Ruiz is that right well in Spanish we say Maria del Rosario Ruiz <laughs> thank you yeah. thank you no no I appreciate that yeah yeah and and who is she so who was she she was the main name of behavior I mean because American uh, behavior analyst who when we started studying feminism, we only found pretty much papers that were written by her. You know, like mm. she was like this island of knowledge within feminism, behavior analysis, and which was great, of course, but you know, like an island. So mm. that's pretty tough. And then we're like, yeah, we have to expand this. Like this is a huge start, and it, you know, like we ha we need people to continue those debates. Mm -hmm. And actually, mm -hmm. the paper, the, the behavior and situations uh, paper on feminism, it was, uh, as you were, you were mentioning, like, what I've noticed 
was that like I was trying to follow up with the literature on feminism and behavior analysis, and I've noticed, I mean, the literature in English, and and I've noticed that here in Brazil we actually had more topics covered, you know, than mm. in the in this literature, and I was like, oh my god, like I need to do something about it, and that's why I wrote it down. And as you mentioned, it was just two topics. Like there were a lot in the book. We talked about many things, you know, like we started talking about the history of Brazilian behavior analysis, uh, the first uh, female behavior analysis in Brazil. We talk about intersectional feminism. We talk about gender inequality, rape culture, you know, like there were a lot of topics. And I wasn't seeing them as developed when I was reading the English published literature. And I was like, oh, if we can't get the book translated, then I have to just tell people that there there are things that are published. They're just not in English yet. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and it's it's funny you say that because when that I think that was the other thing that drew me to to these articles. But these were topics I had not read about in sort of other papers. I've I've read a bit about I haven't I haven't read uh, any of the 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 things from Dr. Ruiz, but um, um, some of the stuff that I've read kind of more recently seems to be more focused on things like um, like pay equity. Uh, there seems to be quite a few articles on pay equity um, and and some stuff on feminism, uh, you know, within. With, with within within sort of academia in kind of in kind of the U.S. Uh, I know a, a recent article was uh, and I had kind of had her on the podcast, uh, Dr. Byres, Natalia Byres, and and she's been she's doing some cool stuff. Uh, but again, she's very young, very very relatively new to the field. So again, some some of the stuff that's coming out now is 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 really new, um, and, and so not surprising that. Um, um, uh, you know they haven't hit on all these topics. Um, th this article is great because I mean, I mean I, we'll, we'll share it in the show notes because I mean uh, you know it, it goes over a, a lot of really interesting topics. I, I, I mean for 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 the purposes of, of this interview, we won't get into sort of the empowerment and rape culture discussion. Um, uh, again, the article really lays it out really nicely, and folks can give that a good read. But I wouldn't mind kind of scrolling a, a bit further down in the article um, and maybe talking a little bit about um, the barriers that you, for studying feminism. Because I thought that was really important. And I think that, again, speaks again to the context. You know, I think it, it sounds after reading this, it makes sense why it's a, it, it's interesting that you have more topics than feminism, because um, that seems to be, you know, opposite to sort of these barriers because there's there seems to be a lot less barriers in, in the US and Canada and yet they haven't talked about all these great topics. But what are what are some of these barriers to sort of studying feminism for behavior analysis in Brazil? So um, in my understanding as I put it on the paper, I think like language is one main barrier because we I think most of the literature is in other languages, especially like English or French, mm. you know, mm. and mm. it's just hard. I mean we are in a, sometimes when you're talking with Brazilian people and you're like, oh, everybody speaks English, but it's not true at all. You know, like if you, I don't have like very recent stats on that, but I remember that I found a statistic showing that like, I think 5% of the Brazilian population was able, you know, like had some knowledge of English. 
And you actually mm. see that when you go on the streets. And like, I'm speaking English with you, but here in my neighborhood, like, I don't recall of anybody who could do that. Mm. You know, so uh, we do have English classes in school, in public school, but they're not good. So we don't learn and you have to mm. pay to learn English. And mm. most people don't have money to pay for English classes, you know. And so mm. that's just the first huge barrier because it is dependent yes. upon having money. And yes. a lot of people in Brazil don't have money. So even if a person goes out of her way to go into college, then she, you know, like gets this huge barrier that is like you have to read in English and the person doesn't know how to read in English. Right. And there are no like right. there are no classes of technical English for papers or things like that. So it's it's just hard, you know. And every time like um every talk that I'm studying, I also I always have this uh preoccupation of write down something in Portuguese because that's where I live, that's you know, like I'm talking about the Brazilian context. So even though we have like this uh pressure to publish in English because we do <laughs> and mm -hmm. there are huge pressures I'm like no but this is for the Brazilian people and I have to do something in, in mm -hmm. Portuguese or else I'm not mm -hmm. doing what I'm supposed to do you know I'm just producing I'm just meeting up some standards and but it's hard you know because on the other part you know like we as researchers we have this pressure to like no we have people who say, like, if you publish in Portuguese, it doesn't count. And I think it's absurd to say that. You're like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how can you say that? But it's hard. And, and then, like, English is really a huge barrier because even with people who know a little bit of English, you know, like, it's different know, knowing a little bit of and reading an academic paper with mm -hmm. a lot of technical terms and things like that. Yeah. Um, and I think the second one that I put it in is related to activism because, uh, unfortunately, Brazil is a country that kills a lot of activists. Mm. So it was actually deemed like the champion. Oh, that's a horrible way to be a champion. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. You know, like, this is a country that kills most activists in the world. And it's just so sad because we have this, you know, like, we have this professor uh, who studies gender and she had to leave the country because she was being threatened. It's just crazy, you know, and this actually happens. We have records of activists being killed. So, wow. I mean, yeah, sometimes they say, oh, if you're in an academic position, you can do activism, but it's it's less threatening. It's like, eh, perhaps not. Like, we have a living example of a person who had to flee the country. You know, like, that's huge. That's awful. Yeah. Mm. Um, so uh, I think there's, those two are our main barriers when I think of, like, students and then professionals who work with this team and who wants mm. to share these ideas to people. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, yeah, those are huge barriers. I'm thinking about the, the, the language, number one. You know, it's interesting because, I, you know, I had noticed, you know, when I was reading some of these other articles, you know, I didn't see yours being cited, right, you know, in, in, in those articles because they're in Portuguese. So these folks aren't able to read Portuguese, so they're not going to read your articles to kind of get that great information. Yeah, that's got to be quite the 
I, I can't relate to it in any way, obviously, but um, it's got to be quite the sort of dilemma that you want to, you know, you want to, you want to publish in Portuguese because that's your, you know, that's your language. That's the language of your, your people. And, and, uh, you know, that's the language of your culture and, and, uh, you know, and, and, and it has a lot of meaning, but, uh, but if you want to be sort of recognized internationally and if you want to collaborate internationally, you want to go to international conferences, you know, and you've, I, th I think you've done that. I know I, I, I definitely saw your name in recent last couple of years at some international conferences, but again, you're one of these rare folks that, you know, can speak English and you're able to disseminate that way. Yeah. I would imagine there's probably some relational frames happening right there where folks are thinking, Oh, well, she speaks English, so they must all speak English, you know, so, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, and, and so, you know, that's gotta be, that's gotta, that's gotta be a, that's gotta be a huge dilemma to balance. And it's not fair that, you know, you should have to learn English. Like, you know, I mean, in, in an ideal world, you know, some of these Americans could learn some Portuguese, you know. And, and that could be the way there could be some, you know, some sort of cross cross uh, sharing. But I mean, I think we also know that Portuguese is is, uh, you know, up there in the difficult languages to learn. I've, I've been told um, um, uh, at so least. <laughs> no, it's not so hard for you. <laughs> but uh, I've, I've been told I've been told it's a tricky one. Uh, you know, I don't think it's anything like Icelandic or Welsh, but um uh, but, uh, but, but, you know, it, it's not, it's not as simple as, as Spanish as some folks would say Spanish is. I mean, not that Spanish is simple, but I think Spanish is related to a lot of other languages. And so it makes it easier to learn. Spanish is connected to French. There's lots of French speakers. It's connected to Italian in some ways. And so there, there's some similar, I don't know much about languages, so I, I could be speaking <laughs> out my, my, by my ass here, but I know that there's some, there's some connections there. And so if you know some of those languages, even, even to English, you know, it's easier, but Portuguese isn't so much. Um, so that, that, that's gotta be a huge barrier, but the activism thing is, is wild. Like, I mean, that, I think that's something we take for granted in, in Canada and the U S is that, um, you know, uh, we definitely have some protests and we have some violent, we've had some violent counter protests in recent times from, you know, some of the far right and the fascists and that sort of thing. Um, but even then in the end, the police come in and break it up. Well, to an extent, um, the the police are also definitely a problem, but um, um, it's it's not. These people aren't getting killed, you know, in 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 the context of protesting. They're getting killed. People are getting killed, and that's why they're protesting. Um, um, but they're not getting killed for act for for activism. And so, yeah, I mean, and and, and you've got a lot of. I mean, you've got a lot of big issues that you're writing about and talking about, and. Um, have you ever had sort of some, some, you know, some fear of your own for your own safety by doing this work? The second secret word is stereotype. Yes, <laughs> I cannot say that I have. I mean, uh, yeah, because uh, it's always, you know, like we are already from a minoritized group or main mm -hmm. <laughs> minoritized mm -hmm. groups. And sometimes when you're speaking about those issues, you don't have anybody to back you up, you know? So you're just like, mm. you're an island. You're talking about something that is very important to you, that like you have loads of data supporting it. And you feel lonely because people look at you and be, and be like, oh, is that so hard? Like, oh, is mm -hmm. this really a problem? You know, like, it's just 
it's awful, you know, and you fear, I mean, I don't think I've ever feared for my life for writing about these things, you know, like mm. the papers, but I have a personal fear of like not getting a job, you know, because I actually like when we we are in conferences, we hear people looking at us and say like, this is not research, like what you're doing is just bullshit. Mm. You're never going to get a job. And like big important mm. people saying those things, you know. Wow. So, you know, it's hard, you know, it's dangerous, but if you don't do it, then, you know, like, it's just so hard because if you don't do it, nothing's going to change. And if you do it, perhaps it's going to change, but there's all of those risks attached to it, you know? Mm. So we tend to, you know, like, think about, oh, is this worthwhile doing right now? And sometimes I just shut up and don't say anything just mm. to protect myself. But at other times, I'm like, yeah, I, I, I think, like, I have to say this. Yeah. And, I mean, in Brazil, and I don't want to get too much into politics here, but Brazil, up until recently, you know, you had a, 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 a is it a president? Is that what they call it yeah. in Brazil? So you, you had a president that was, you know, a, 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 a lot like our last, like yeah. a lot like the U, not ours, but the U.S.'s last yeah, president. Yeah. And, you know, and they were kind of best friends in some ways. And, you know, I mean, you don't, again, you know, we didn't hear, you don't hear a lot in the news about kind of what's happening. I mean, I think the biggest thing that I heard in the news related to that, that fella was, you know, uh, you know, just taking down the Amazon, um, you know, bit by bit and, you know, and, and, and essentially destroying the last, you know, um, you know, it's destroying one of the most important contributors to sort of protecting our planet from climate change. Um, uh, but of course, you know, th th this is, this is a populist president that probably didn't believe in climate change. So that, that was easy enough to do. Um, and obviously, so obviously with, 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 a with a president, you know, with, with sort of a president like that and sort of more kind of right, right wing kind of extremist kind of thinking, you know, it, there, there had to be even more of a, of a, of a fear, you know, uh, and, and probably a lot more activists were were probably died have have died sort of in the last you know, I, I don't know how long he was in power, but for the last you know several years that he was in power, it's probably been quite quite scary, I imagine, eh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he was basically a public, very important person, uh, authorizing people to say awful things, you know, to minorities. Yeah. It was yeah. basically that, yeah, yeah, it was very scary all the time. It was really scary. And most of my friends were as well. Like yeah. People that I know that work with uh, social justice things, they're all scared all the time. Yeah. And, and, and again, I know very little about the politics, but is the, is the new leader a turn for the better? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> it's a huge difference. It was a huge relief. Of course, uh, he's not perfect, but yeah, I mean, it was a, a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. Well, I folks really need to read this this article. Um, um, you know, anyone interested in anything related to social justice, and I know I've got a lot of listeners that are, are interested in social justice. I've had a lot of guests. That are interested in social justice, and so I hope they pick up this paper and 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 reach out to you to to collaborate. I wanna, you know, I wanna talk 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 about this other 
article. I don't know if we're going to get into all the articles that you sent me. You sent me some great ones. I'm going to share all of them in the show notes, even if we don't talk about them today, because, I th- because you know, like I said, uh, Tassada has published, and her colleagues have published some really cool articles on a lot of areas related to social justice, particularly related to racism. And I don't know if we're going to be able to get into all of them today. Uh, but I do want to talk about the, the other one um, that speaks to contributions from Brazil. Um, and that's the uh, another article also published. I, I think I guess, was this published in the same, yeah, in the same issue. Yeah. Oh, it was okay. I was just reading. I thought they read that wrong. Yeah. So published in the same issue um, as as the feminism article was an article entitled "Racial Racial Issues and Behavior Analysis Experiences and Contributions from Brazil," and that's by, by you and, and 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 three of your colleagues too. I think I've heard you mention already today. Um, Um, tell tell me a little bit about kind of um, why you wrote this article, um, and, uh, and and maybe kind of kind of kind of some of the some of the highlights would be cool. Okay, so I think it was a pretty much a similar concern within the feminism feminism literature. Yeah. I knew that there were some pretty cool things happening here, um, so for instance. Uh, that's not to brag, but like I had this paper published in 2017 with my mm. former supervisor. There yeah. was like a, a, a summary of the contributions of behavior analysis when dealing with uh, racism, racial issues in general. Yeah. And then yeah. it was published in Portuguese. And then like three years later, there were a paper very similar, but published in English. And of course, pr- probably the, the author uh, didn't have uh, couldn't read the the paper in Portuguese or didn't even uh, had access mm-hmm. to it, and then it was like, I mean, I was like thinking, oh, there was three years later, and they're talking about the same things we were already talking. If they knew what we were doing, like perhaps they were able to uh, improve it, you know, like think about other mm. things and and uh, broaden, I don't know, something like that. And so uh, I was seeing some things published in Portuguese that were not discussed. In English and I was like I have to tell this to people you know so uh, I think I mean a little bit was already published so I, I thought uh, the paper mentioned four contributions and the first one are the behavior analytic accounts of racial prejudice and pretty much the literature on stimulus equivalence so there was already mm. published in English and so we had like my studies and um, studied by Marilia who's also from Brazil uh, something that was new was a, uh, a study that was carried out here in Brazil that was looking at stereotype threat, uh, yeah, and 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 trying to relate it to behavior analysis. And I thought this is just great because it, stereotype threat is a phenomenon that is widely studied. You know, like when you look at social psychology, you have so many papers on it. And every time that I was reading about it, I was like, this is stimulus control, this is stimulus control. But I never thought like, I'm going to write about this. And then this guy did that, you know, like Mm. he actually tried to look at how to understand stereotype threat using relational frame theory. So like the relations that are established, stimulus control, basically. And he also uh, had like an experimental. So he, he carried out, I think, four studies or five studies and it was pretty cool when I was reading and I was like oh we don't have that in English so I have to tell people <laughs> that this exists you know and so that people can know and perhaps of course like 
not just get to know, but do something about it, you know? And yeah, yeah. stereotype threat is a, a topic that I'm very interested in because when you look at literature, you see that very small changes are able to enhance the performance of students. And I always think to myself, like, why don't professors use this all the time? I mean, if they knew about this, if they were trained about this, some simple instructions, some simple words that sometimes you say and you don't have to say, you know, like very, very, very small changes can do so much for the students, like not to feel anxious, not to feel like they're being evaluated. And I just had to, you know, like I just wanted to to tell people about it. Uh, I what, think. Yeah. What, sorry. What What is stereotype threat? Can you just tell me a little bit? What yeah. That means? <laughs> yeah, I should have mentioned this already. So uh, stereotype threat is the name given to a phenomenon that is wildly um, assessed in the literature that shows that um, the performance of an individual can be impaired depending on some environmental features. So like we have this classic study that had uh, white and black students do a simple task that wasn't really measuring ever anything, but the instruction said that well, now I don't remember exactly, but pretty much like if the instruction mentioned something about the race of the students, then black students performed worse than white students, and this was mm. actually um, what is the word I'm looking for replicated with gender, mm. you know, like when it with gender with other races, you know, like uh asian students and white students so like it's a hugely study phenomenon and it was replicated with a lot of different features and it's that you know like if you don't say like if you say something like this does not mean that you were dumb or <laughs> something like that you know like students sure. perform better you know if you don't say that this is related to their race or this means that they're not good you know, some very, very, very small changes and instruction in environmental cues can make a, a performance very wildly. Yeah, and, and maybe, maybe this is a, you know a, a good time to bring in because it does it does actually sound very behavior analytic if you start to think about it, yeah. you know, a little bit. Um, and I know that. Um, you go on, it's, it's D'Souza, I believe, that, that's talking a lot about this, about yeah. sort of um, uh, kind of how RFT fits in here. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because, I, I you know, I didn't, I this this little section here, by the way, again, for folks that maybe aren't okay. all, that, all that familiar with RFT, this, this little, this, this little three paragraph section here in this article is a great little intro to RFT because it really takes this whole idea and conceptualizes it in, in, in through RFT and it's really just interesting. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about how RFT and stereotype threat are related or conceptualized, I guess. Okay. Am I going to stick or <laughs> Yes, you are. Yes, thank you. Yes. Sorry, that was a question. So oh, okay. yeah, uh, the RFT piece in there. Yeah. Okay. Should I like should I hmm. first uh, define or just like jump into it? What, what what well sure let's define yeah okay because yeah <laughs> I mean, that's that's a lot to talk 
So okay. let's let's first talk about like symbols, equivalents, and then we go to autorelations. Yeah. That yeah. Yeah. Like. Uh, okay. So what this author is like this the analysis this author made was that if there's like a, a an equivalence relation between an individual's group and a, a negative attribute, you know, uh, there's mm. this possibility that the facts of the stereotype threat will will happen, you know, like we can actually see this consistent and literature actually mm. shows that, you know. So mm, mm. Uh, what, he's, what he says is that if you have a situation where the context is signaling you uh, two relations, so first a relation between the individual and their group, and then their group and the task, mm. uh, you actually have you know, like the, the relation between this individual and the task as a consequence of those two other relations. Mm. You know? Uh, so when you talk about relational frame theory, we're just like expanding this, not to just equivalence, but other relations as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, what, what I wouldn't mind, uh, um, so that, so I think, again, I think, again, that's just another nice article that's, that's written in English um, that sort of outlines some of the contributions of um, uh, the, uh, you know, Brazilian behavior analysts, um, um, to, to to racism and um, and then the other one to feminism. Let, I wouldn't mind talking a little bit about the one article though that that, that you were involved with. Um, well, there's a few actually. Uh, like I know, for for example, I know you talked about the 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 I think it was 2016 or 2017 article. That was the one around uh, trying to change some changing bias uh, a bit there. And and then I know we've seen some 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 other ones. I mean, I had an I did an interview with um, Vic Suarez. I think it was an episode like nineteen or twenty or twenty-one or something, and she did a similar article um, uh, article on on trying to sort of uh, use it. I think she's used a computer program and then use some of those implicit bias measures, um, and then tried to sort of uh, yeah, basically I think quite similar using stimulus equivalence to sort of see if she could um, you know affect um, 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 change in bias, um, and we're, I think we're seeing a few more of those coming out. Uh, I, I don't and I and, and my guess is they probably don't reference yours um, 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 but uh, you know maybe they will going forward but I would I wouldn't mind talking a little bit about um, the police stops article uh, the racial prejudice and police stops article I think that's a really interesting one um, and uh, and speaks to I think it's you know it's relatable I think you know for a lot of the listeners because of there's been a lot of conversation around you know um, police brutality and, and, um, you know, and particularly, uh, you know, black people feeling, you know, essentially, um, unsafe in the presence of police in, in any way, um, um, uh, you know, uh, certainly in the U S and so just hearing about sort of how this plays out kind of in another country alone, I think would be quite interesting, but maybe also giving us a bit of context on how maybe police kind of differ in Brazil than maybe other countries. You have this military police sort of regime. Okay. Yeah, it'll be hard to compare because I don't really know how to how well, it actually just, works. Just, in just, other just, just, just your your perspective on it, okay. and then you know folks can compare in their minds. So actually, this paper uh, uh, was a second paper. We actually started with a different paper that was published in Portuguese <laughs> that mm. we actually were doing. Um, so just let's go back a little bit. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
I started studying racial bias for, I mean, because I wanted to study racial issues, but also I started with racial bias because starting with racism seemed a lot because it's way mm. more complex. So I started with this smaller thing, you know, like talking about interpersonal relations. Yeah. And then after I studied this for a while, I wanted to expand a little bit and trying to look at racism and like institutional racism and things like that. And that's where the, the police comes in. So we, we actually, like, I had uh, this uh, professor helping me, Angelo Sampaio, who's just great, and I love him. And he, he works a lot up with, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, he works a lot with culture, you know, like, so mm. micro contingencies, meta contingencies, and things like that, yeah. which is something that I know that I have to, I, I knew at a time that I had to learn. And I was like, yep. yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna go there and study under him for a while so then I can learn sure. learn a little bit about it. And so we, we did this paper first, there was an analysis, so we tried to use meta contingencies, macro contingencies to understand the police in Brazil and institutional racism. So things like hmm. we have these indicators of institutional racism when you look at, for instance, the number of black and white people there are incarcerated. Or the number yes. of, like, the, when you look at penalties, like the number of years, the type of uh, consequence that is given to people, you know, like sometimes, oh, the white person is like, oh, that's okay, that, there was nothing. And then the black person mm. goes to jail. So we had all of these mm. indicators and we're trying to look at how does this look from a behavior analytic perspective, you know, like apart from, of course, we can do this analysis one by one, you know, like using antecedents, behavior and consequences. But when you look at culture, like how, when you talk about groups, we have this result. And then we have this, mm. this first paper. And the second paper that you were mentioning was actually then continuing, you know. So we were like, right. okay, now we have some theoretical understanding of how, how this happened. And it's good. And it's focus on the Brazilian context and then we're like okay but let's look at the literature to see uh, one one of the actions the police does you know like police stops in this case and then just you know like review this because we, we didn't uh, we didn't have this, this data at the time and then let's look at the literature and see how the police stops can relate to racial prejudice or racism, institutional right. racism. Um, then one of his students is, uh, is actually uh, a study that I co-supervised. And so Alini is the, the main researcher. Mm. And mm. we were looking at the literature. And if you read just like the, the abstract, you see like we didn't found papers in Portuguese, which already tells us mm. a lot. You know, like, and that's actually an issue. When you talk about racial relations in Brazil, the lack of data is an issue because we have constantly yes. people not collecting data, you know, separated by race. So it's like we mm. can't do like, it's like if you don't have the data, you can prove that this is happening, you know. So it was it was a shame. I mean, of course, it was important and we actually got to look. We, we got studies from... I think most of them were from like United States and then in mm -hmm. England and Wales and the Netherlands, like 
none yeah. from Brazil, you know. Right. But all of them were pretty much showing us that uh, the actions of the police, you know, like we have this different name for the stop or stop and frisk, you know, uh, that the various, but what we see is that if there, there is a black person, this person is more likely to be uh, stopped by the police, you know, like this yes. person is more likely to have a bad consequence of that encounter. And even if this person like has nothing to do with anything, you know, like she's just like driving somewhere, it it, it is a, a discriminative stimulus for a police to just stop this person and I don't know, imagine this person is a, a criminal and, and things like that. It's just very sad actually. It's not different mm. in Brazil, like we are looking at the results and it actually happens a lot in Brazil, uh, even though we don't always have data. Mm. But uh, it's just really sad, you know, and we're thinking there was actually a paper that was published in this like collection of uh, racially guided studies. There were like they were trying to develop strategies to change the behaviors of, of police officers, you know, like, mm, for instance, like mm. if you put a camera on them, like, would this, would this lead them to reduce the number of, of times they go to a black person to freeze them, you know? And mm. so I think it was like the, the first, first we wanted this picture. So then we can think about the strategies and like, how, now that we have this data, how can we deal mm. with it? You know, like, how can we change that? Because it's clearly uh, showing us that this is racism. Like, there's no other mm. explanation. And now it's it's nice to see like that there's already a paper trying to figure that out. Like, how can we change that? But we need more like more strategies and especially mm. the strategies strategies not only aiming at like reducing these but looking at actually the structure, you know, like the structural racism within society, like regardless if you're talking about Brazil, United States or Canada or other countries, like how can you tackle this looking at the structure? And that's like the hardest question ever. Yeah, yeah. And I don't th I don't think I realized when I was reading this that none of the papers actually came from Brazil, that these were all this was a review of yeah. sort of everywhere else. So I obviously you don't have the data, but I mean just just for a little bit of context, um, you know, and, and really it can only really be you know, sort of anecdotal and maybe personal experience, but is is it is it likely the same or worse, you know, sort of in, in Brazil as far as sort of how, you know, um, uh, black people are treated by police? Is is are are black do black people grow up, uh, you know, sort of being Fair afraid of police? Yeah, yeah. yeah and it, and all that sort of thing. It's hard to say, like, if it's the same or worse. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, black people grew up hearing the police, and mm. we actually see some huge differences. So, for instance, like myself and my sister, like both women, and like I'm black, my sister is white, mm. and I grew up and I learned from early on that I have to have like my my ID with me at all times mm -hmm. because to mm -hmm. this day we have this law in Brazil. There was actually a really enforced right after slavery that can arrest a person if you know like it's hard so hard to translate this no, but we have like I'm this sorry, term yeah. vagiagem 
but it's mainly like to be if you're able to work and you're not working and you like you didn't have uh, a document to prove that you were employed somewhere they just sure. you know like put the person uh behind bars and wow yeah this this law is still like it's still happening in brazil i don't think it, it happens as as it was uh mm -hmm. right after uh slavery ended but it is a preoccupation you know like if you are more likely to be uh stopped by the police then you need to have your document and always like i always carry mm. my my university id because they treat me mm. differently when they see of course yeah when they Whoa. see like oh you're a psychologist or you're doing your PhD and things like that like I can see that it changes the way they, they are treating me. Like, at mm. first, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm very scared. And then when they look, they're like, oh, you're a psychologist. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh, okay. So you can go, you know. So yeah. I, I've learned from early on to have my ID. And all of the my black friends as well, especially the men, because there's, all, there's also like this, this gender difference. And mm. my sister and other white people that I've, talked about like sometimes we're or we, we go out you know and they're like sure. oh i don't even have my id and i'm like oh my god how are you here without <laughs> like i get preoccupied and they're like what why are you worried i'm like what if the police talk to you and i'm like yeah the police is not gonna do that to you uh, so you know yeah, like yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. like we laugh but it's oh my god it's just harsh you know it's so ingrained yeah yeah it's just like just Part of the reality is just you don't even think about it. And then you have to, oh, you don't you don't go through that. And we actually mm. see, like, I have friends that were, like, on a bus, for instance, and then the police goes to the bus. And, like, this is a white friend of mine, and he was with black colleagues. And then the policeman look at the white man and say, like, okay, you wait. And then he was, like, uh, searching, like, the clothes and, and looking at the black colleagues to see if they were carrying something. So, like, mm. it's it's... It's clear that the way they're treating us is differently. You know, like they don't even try to uh, to hide it. Did did the um, when George Floyd was murdered? You know, obviously lots of things happening in the U.S. that were different, and it definitely resonated in Canada. Did 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 the George Floyd murder? you know, sort of have any ripple effects down in Brazil or, or, or was it just sort of another story from the States? Oh, that's a very difficult to answer question because... Yeah. Which is like, again, just even from your own perspective. I know, I know again, because you don't have data and it's so hard when you Yeah, yeah. But, so like, this uh, brought a movement to Brazil. I think that's undeniable. Okay. Okay. Uh, there were a lot more people talking about race issues in Brazil and yeah. race relations and things like that and doing mm. discussions. Uh, but I I feel like it doesn't last. You know, like, we had, mm. like, not long ago, not like a month ago, a person here in Brazil, like a white, uh, a black woman, who's like, a, the police officer, like, stepped on her neck. I mm. doubt that you've heard about this. No. No. So, yeah, like, these things also happen in Brazil. Mm. It, don't, it doesn't get that much media cover. 
sure. as yeah. I mean, it is really important that the things happening in the United States or whatever place gets here, of course. Yeah. 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 But it's like you know, like it for me, the message is like, yeah, we're worried, but we're not that worried because the, mm. it's happening here. You know, like what are we doing yeah. to change that? You know, like. People talk about it and they're like, oh, racism is bad and things like that. But they don't do anything to, to change that. Mm. So mm. it's hard. And like we have, of course, like the black movements and other uh, small groups are fighting all the time, you know, like to change the situation. And at the same time, where the power is, people are like, yeah, that doesn't concern me. So, mm. yeah, it's hard, actually. Yeah. I know we're getting close to uh, wrapping up here. I know you got to get going to another meeting. Uh, I'm wondering, maybe you could just tell folks kind of what kind of projects you're working on right now. And and related to that, I know one of your papers, and, and you've said this a few times, and but one of your papers also talks about sort of the importance of more international collaboration. And so maybe tell us a little bit about what you're working on now, but also, you know, A, how can people get a hold of you and, and, and you know, what, what kinds of things would you like to sort of collaborate on? Okay. So right now I'm studying uh, racial microaggressions and gender mm. racial microaggressions who can be defined as like racial slurs, you know, like insults that are often deemed as non-intentional but have mm -hmm. real effects, negative effects on people of color and black people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm studying this intersection of gender and race, focusing mm. on black women. Uh, yeah, because I think we need more <laughs> studies about yeah. ourselves. Yeah. And it's been actually very interesting because uh, I'm reviewing the literature in this moment. And again, like there is almost nothing in Portuguese about this. And mm. We have a huge population of black women in Brazil. Like we are pretty much like twenty-five percent of the population. And if mm -hmm. you look at literature on black women, like it's just so scarce. You know, like very yeah. little things being published, very few things being published. But uh, so my focus now is is going to compare two universities in Brazil, like one that is black that has. This proposition of being a black university which is new in Brazil like it's not like United States that have historically mm. black universities and then comparing to it could be any university really but one of the widest universities we have and so mm. uh, I'm going to trying to see like if there are going to be differences in the gender racial microaggressions these women experience mm. being in those two very different environments Wow, uh, cool. Yeah, yeah. So I'm pretty excited about that. And regarding collaboration, I'm pretty much open to anything that has to do to social justice, really. But yeah. uh, especially if it's related to like autism, but with this critical approach, or if we're talking about intersections of autism and gender or race and things like that, uh, racial issues, of course, uh, feminism. So I think, mm. and gender and sexuality that are like, I think they're the main topics that I'm interested in, in talking about and, and collaborating. And I've actually had some, some they're not plans actually, they're already 
um, collaborations in progress, you know, like uh, writing a paper right now with a researcher from Ireland and mm. another one from the United States, which is going to be interesting in talking about gender and, and behavior analysis. And let me check because I, I don't remember everything, but there is something I, I think it's it's important to, to mention. So, yeah. uh, I should have prepared this. It's okay. <laughs> if I get like 10 minutes or 15 minutes late, I, I hope it's not a problem. I, I don't think it'll be a problem. I'll tell people like, it's all my fault. Okay. So, it's it's a special issue that I'm organizing with other people. I'm just oh. trying to remember the details so I can talk about it. Okay, yeah. So, uh, this is actually a call for papers on behavior analysis in practice on impactful leaders, Latin American women in behavior analysis. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know if Natalia mentioned that. I don't know. I don't remember when she was uh, yep. in the podcast. So, yep. uh, the guest editors are, you know, like Natalia Byers and I don't know where I'm saying Byers with a, an American accent. <laughs> I should say Natalia Byers, Sebastian Garcia Zambrano. Yep. And I'll be one of the associate guest editors. So I think it's a pretty uh, interesting chance to, if you're from Latin America, and to talk mm -hmm. about the important work we are doing here. And if you know anybody who is interested in, in submitting, uh, yeah. the call is open until April. So, okay, perfect. Yeah. That's that's really cool. Okay, awesome. We'll, we'll share that around, and hopefully, maybe when uh, when when that gets done and comes out, maybe I could even have you and T Natalia back on yeah. to talk about that. That'd, That'd be, be really great. cool. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Really cool. I'm I'm so glad we finally got to have you on, um, yeah. and, and and to share this work. Um, something I'd like to do, um, if you're into it, um, and if you're not, I'll edit it out, but, um, uh, is, I don't know if you know, but right now it's February, um, uh, 2023. And, uh, I put a bunch of episodes out, um, from the podcast and, and I'm offering free CEUs for them, um, for, for, for black history month. Um, I thought it might be cool to try to publish this episode this week, if I can. Normally, I wait like six months to publish, but to publish it this week and and also give free CEUs for it. So that way, more folks will listen and 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 we can get the word out from Brazil to more people that way. Okay. Whereas if they have to pay, they're less likely to listen. And so I can make this one one of the free ones, too. Would, would, would you be into that? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. So my goal will be to get it out this Friday. If not, I'll definitely get it out next Friday. Uh, it'll just depend on our, our little editing glitch with the recording and making that work. But if I can make it happen, then it'll be out this Friday. Um, cool. All right. Well, thanks so much, Tassina, for coming on. This has been awesome, and I'm, I'm hoping to have you on again in the future. Thank you. I'll be, I'll be glad to be back. Right on. All right. The third secret word is feminism.